defamation case in this country only to walk away a war criminal edition of Spin Cycle. (laughs) This is the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle and in this case, the last few hours in this day. Well, it's, 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 it's both the last few hours and also the last, like, five years. <laughs> well, that's true. It's dragged on a little bit. But things really, you know, accelerated. <laughs> yeah, accelerated a great deal this afternoon. 2.15pm <laughs> today. Uh, we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty have never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly, of course. And in the studio with Crikey's Charlie Lewis. How are you, Charlie? Uh, I, I'm okay. I mean, I think there was... I think we were talking about this before the show started. Um, there was so much I thought we were going to get to talk about tonight. There's, there's, there, you know, years have happened in this week in media, and there, and there are so many interesting things that I thought we could get into. And it's like, no, no, that's all been Mm-mm. burnt out now. Uh uh-uh, no. Well, we already had a really fantastic chat booked in, and um, so we'll be talking to academic and author Sally Young about her book Media Monsters, which is the second in a three-part series. Uh, about the Australian newspaper industry, and I know you are busting your gut yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, It will not probably shock regular <laughs> listeners of the show to hear that I am just so amped about this chat. Our resident history nerd <laughs> is going to go deep while I sit back and listen. Um, but later in the show, we are going to uh, talk about the Ben Robert Smith versus the media defamation trial and the verdict that was handed down today. Um, I mean, I did you watch it? No, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. This just as it so happened this afternoon, I was uh, doing interviews from about two to about three, and I kind of came back to my desk and was like, "Wait, what happened?" <laughs> well, I tuned in for the first time ever to the High Court's live YouTube stream. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't check that out regularly? That, that surprises me. <laughs> and uh, I I didn't understand. Uh, I mean, Judge Pasenko. There were lots of words and they were being put together in very specific ways, Mm -hmm. none of which I comprehended. Um, I've got to say, though, I did enjoy the whole vibe of the thing. You know, he was wearing robes. He had an immaculate comb over that just took me back to a time, you know, that I had. uh, Bobby Charlton vibe. Just amazing. (laughs) You know, I was transfixed. Um, and then I did, I did understand the key words. It was actually quite exciting. So we will talk about that later on. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Sally Young is a professor of political science at the University of Melbourne and the award-winning author of several books on Australian politics and media. She's just released Media Monsters, the second of her three-volume history of Australian newspapers. It's been described uh, by Professor Frank Bongiorno as essential reading for anyone with a serious interest in how power has been exercised in this country. And I cannot tell you how much I've been looking forward to chatting about this with you. Uh, Professor Young, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. So this is the second volume of your three-volume history of, of the newspaper business in Australia, and it deals with papers from sort of the early, early mid to early 40s to 1972. Now, talk to us a bit about the significance of those dates and why you decided on those particular cut-off. Okay. Yeah, so the, the first book finished at 1941 when Robert Menzies had just finished his first stint as Prime Minister and he felt that the newspapers had done him in mm-hmm. and stabbed him in the back. Um, so he was sort of convinced that they had really turned on him and made his career, ended his career at that point. Um, 
So it ends there. So this book picks up the story from there and it takes it forward through decades of relations between uh, politicians and newspaper groups, which were particularly powerful in Australia, and it ends in 1972 because that was a very unusual point when several newspapers backed Labor, which was unusual. They usually backed the Conservative parties, and that was because Rupert Murdoch at that time was uh, quite to the left of politics and was backing Whitlam and the the Labor Party at that time. So it spans um, a a real shift in how um, the papers were thinking about politics, but particularly Rupert Murdoch's role, and that was just emerging then. We will, we'll, we'll get to Rupert uh, in good time, I'm sure. Um, I suppose the interesting thing, one of the many things that's, that I found really fascinating about the book is there's a certain element of, I suppose if anyone comes to this book with some sense of, of um, nostalgia and a sense that, one, you know, at one point it was done right in Australia and that, that uh, you know, the game was played hard but fair, there is, there is a certain element of kind of taking away the veil and revealing that, you know, a sense that personal enmities and grudges kind of came to shape how Australia viewed kind of major issues, even at this stage. Um, we've obviously got the, there's the kind of, as you, as you mentioned, the kind of general pro-business, pro-liberal tilt of most newspaper owners is one thing. But then there's also, you also see like these very personal campaigns, mm. um, say from Keith Murdoch against someone like John Curtin uh, or mm-hmm. Warwick, Warwick Fairfax about Robert Menzies at the time, um, re- referring to him as the, the baffling Mr. Menzies. Um, mm-hmm. And also Frank Packer, and, and are they other, are there in the spectrum, you know, Frank Packer something, things like, say what you want about other politicians, but I admire um, Menzies greatly. I mean, uh, talk to us a bit about the role that those kind of personal enmities kind of played in, in shaping the, the kind of uh, coverage that newspapers gave at this time. Mm. And, and, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So that sometimes, um, say, with Warwick Fairfax, for example, the, the, the Sydney Morning Herald that he was the major owner of was a very conservative paper that uh, had, had never... Um, advocated a vote for Labor, was extremely conservative, but he despised Robert Menzies so much that um, they backed Arthur Corwell, who was very to the left of the the Labor Party, even the mainstream Labor Party. But um, So sometimes these personal uh, feelings and relationships that are involved, Warwick Fairfax had once been very friendly with uh, Robert Menzies, um, but sometimes things happen, and in, in that particular case, the talk around the press gallery for decades afterwards was that the cause might have been um, allegedly an affair that um, Menzies had with Warwick Fairfax's first wife, which I try to... um you know, deal with that in the book, whether that possibly could have been true. We'll never know. Hello. Um, but it, but, <laughs> now I'm but, listening. You know, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So sometimes these factors get involved. And say, for example, um, you know, young Rupert Murdoch backed Arthur Corwell as well, even though Corwell despised his father. Mm. Um, so sometimes they let personal things don't get in the way of um, political ambitions and business ambitions. And then other times they forego the business um, possibility and opportunities, and really it is quite quite personal, perhaps. So, um, I mean, Frank Packer was at least consistent. He hated all Labor leaders and uh, all <laughs> unions and uh, anyone on the left. Um, he thought everyone was a communist. But, yeah, you know, the, the others, uh, they had their political lines. And, um, yeah, as you say, it was, there was never this golden point where all the papers were objective and neutral and separate from politics. They were always very deeply involved, despite whatever they said about their fourth estate role being separate. 
It's interesting hearing about these like larger-than-life figureheads of these papers. We do have Rupert Murdoch now who is sort of universally the one kind of, you know, the media mogul in, in our landscape. But, you know, since Kerry Packer and maybe there's a tiny bit of Stokes at the moment, but th- those kind of figureheads seem to have disappeared to you know, sort of faceless um, entities leading the, leading the you know, media organisations or le- leading publications now. Looking at that sort of with this co- context today, how important was it in that period that these singular figures were dominating the media landscape in battle with each other? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, as you, as you say, I mean, Rupert Murdoch's going to be the last of that old press baron model. He's, um, you know, in his early 90s, he's been a, a figure in our media and overseas for decades now, but he'll be the last of, of that kind. Mostly who owns newspapers now are, um, you know, entities, but particularly um, shareholders of, um, you know, they could be all sorts of different companies, but, um, you know, particularly superannuation funds own mm. um, quite a lot of shares in newspapers. There are all sorts of owners. But Good. in those days, there <laughs> were these sort of pro- powerful proprietors who really tried to have a say. And that was the point of owning a newspaper. I mean, what's the point? Let's be honest. And even Rupert Murdoch once was honest in the 60s and said, you know, what's the point of owning a paper if you're not going to use it to have a say and have an influence? So, uh, But we, we did have secret owners. I mean, a lot of the um, some of the early newspaper owners were mining company figures, and you know they didn't put that on the front page or on the inside to say that they were behind the newspapers. Uh, but you know, we did have like uh, quite a few mining company magnates who were owning newspapers, so they always had these sort of political purposes. But on the front page of the paper, they would sort of say that they were very neutral and um, you know had this objectivity in journalism, and, and they tried to, in some of them, separate news from opinion, but um, some of them were also notoriously biased, like Packers Papers, for example. <laughs> I mean, let's, I suppose, get into into the Murdochs in particular in this era. I think you make a really fascinating point um, around the time when the power of the uh, Murdoch Papers transitions from, from Keith Murdoch to his son, Rupert. And you, you write, um, Rupert, uh, sorry, Keith would have been constantly looking over Rupert's shoulder and he would have been a restraining force on his son because while Keith's judgment had declined, his tactics were from a bygone era and he cared about appearances, conventions and social approval where Rupert did not. That to me sounds like a, that, that feels like a very, very key difference between the two men. Can we talk a little bit about how, how Rupert Murdoch came to kind of influence the era that this book deals with? Mm, yeah, and I, I think what's interesting about all these dynasties, and they were they were dynasties, they mm. were families like the Fairfaxes or the Packers or the Murdochs, and, and what's interesting about them uh, is the sort of dynastic tendencies that we see now playing out with things like succession is whether they had how many children they had, whether they were just sons or some daughters, or so some of these older dynasties like the Shakespeare family in Canberra who owned the Canberra Times had they ran out of sons uh, and then they, you know they can't possibly think that a woman could ever run a newspaper so then they they look at selling it um, and then others like Rupert Murdoch was an only son he had sisters but he was the only boy so he was always going to be the the heir apparent um, and it really mattered that that some of these figures the ones that we're talking about they were the only son once there were siblings to fight then it gets more complicated 
So birth order and, and the time um, when Keith Murdoch died, Rupert was only 21, he was forming his own way and he was able to forge his own path. And what I was saying in that part of the, the book that you're just reading was that I think his career would have been very different if his father had been alive when he was finding his way because Keith Murdoch was quite controlling. He was very worried about social appearances. He wanted to be in Melbourne High Society. Rupert didn't give a damn about any of that. He was going to crush everyone who got in his way, friend or foe. Um, he just barnstormed through the whole industry. So he didn't have those restraints. He forged his own path very much. I think that really shaped him a lot. But as you say, he was a long way, at least by the time that the book concludes, the Rupert Murdoch that we have come to know today, uh, the, the, the Fox News doyen type, is a very different man at this stage. He's someone that is mm-hmm. actually supporting the one of the more left-wing governments that Australia's ever seen. Mm, that's right. And and he's finding his own feet. I mean, no one's born fully formed politically or otherwise, right? And he, he at the start, just like his father before him, was interested in left-wing politics. Um, both of them went from left to right. So they start off with this youthful idealism. Um, Keith as well hung around with a lot of Labor politicians. Keith was a founding member of the Australian Journalists Association. Uh, so they, they both have this sense where they, they start off in this certain way. They care about politics and ideas and very interested in, in left-wing politics, and then they turned to the to the right. And Rupert had a longer life, so he had a lot longer <laughs> where he could turn much more to, to the right. Um, you know, Keith turned very much to the right towards the end of his life as well. So um, it's interesting how many, actually, not just them, the Murdochs, but others um, that I looked at over time start off with all this um, different views. But once they become newspaper owners, and we're talking big money, you're in the business community, um, you know, you're representing policies that are going to have a say over economics and other things, then they often turn from left to right, which is, which is interesting. But um, Murdoch certainly had a, a long time to do that and taken that very much um, a long way. But as you say, in the 70s, he was interested in, in Labor politics. I mean, I think he's often been very pragmatic. He was interested in who would help him achieve his aims, business-wise and other, otherwise. So, um, you know, he thought that he had an in with Whitlam and that he helped put that government in office. So that's where I leave the book in 1972. And then, of course, uh, that relationship's not going to go well in volume three. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it is interesting, interesting though, that um, because I think in your book, in this volume, is when you sort of touch on this supposed Midas touch that Murdoch has. This is when it, where it's generated from, you know, the, um, the, the, the political dealmaker, the guy who can call an election one way or another. But there is the sense, and you kind of leave the book with it, that actually it's like he knows where the wind's blowing. And now he's very much sticking to one end of politics. Mm-hmm. And, but this was the time where... You know, as you you just you just sort of met, touched on, he was just sort of going where his political fortunes might land him. Do you think that was his approach for quite some time? That you know, the business actually, the business prag- pragmatism led his ideology. Yeah, I mean, he was quite pragmatic for for quite a long time. So even in the UK, when he goes there, um, he backs Tony Blair and the Labor Party in the UK. I think when he does a very... Um, his thinking goes a lot more to the right when he's in the US and he's in you know, New, York, New York society and hanging around with um, high-profile Republicans and his views are influenced there. Um, that's where the but, money is but, with Fox as well, you know. 
Exactly. I mean, he's, that's what used and to be And he can't have it him. both yeah. ways in a global market. <laughs> you, know, you, can't, yeah. you can't hedge your bets left in one market and right in another. <laughs> You've got to kind of yeah. go somewhere. Eventually, yeah. But, I mean, at different times in different countries, he's back different yeah, sort of um, governments. He's changed and he's gone from um, backing Reagan and then Thatcher to Blair. Yeah, that's um, true. And, and Keating. <laughs> so he, he goes. He used to go back and forth, but then he got to a point where um, he hasn't, we haven't seen him on the Labor side for quite a long time. Um, and he used to want to back winners, which meant that, yeah, say with something like the Whitlam government, it, it looked pretty much like it was going to win office for quite a long time before it did. So he was sort of jumping on a bandwagon, perhaps, was one of the criticisms made. But in recent years, they're more um, dogmatic and will back ones that lose. And we can, we've seen that in state elections in Australia and federal elections. Um, they keep running these candidates that the voters aren't buying. And uh, that would have once been a source of embarrassment because you want to be where the power is. But now it seems to be that they're far more ideologically wedded to one side of politics and even more to the right than that side of politics. That's interesting. But the other thing that I think sort of stuck out to me in the book was the idea that these these campaigns, even in the time when newspapers were kind of king in the in the news landscape, that those personal enmities and those campaigns against certain figures didn't necessarily work even then. I mean, I think of um, obviously there was there was there was Keith Murdoch writing increasingly um, vitriolic screeds against the Curtin government and it never seemed to stop them from being returned to office. And then, again, as we've talked about before with uh, Warwick Fairfax and, and the, the coverage of Robert Menzies, I mean, he ended up mm. being prime minister for, for 17 years, I think it was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so obviously... Even then, there was a certain sense that mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't invariably that you were the kingmaker, even as a major newspaper. No, and that, that's always been the difficult thing to separate out, both for, say, political scientists or media scholars, you know, how much of this actually has an influence on yeah. how people vote or how they see the world. But the, the more interesting thing, I think, as well, is that there's something in the political psyche that if you're a politician and, you know, a newspaper owner turns their media assets against you, and in this case, the period I'm talking about in this book, they didn't own just newspapers. They owned radio stations, television stations, magazines... I mean, they were so powerful that you, did, you didn't want them as an enemy. So even if you had some doubt that they could, you know, turn their full firepower against you and get you out of office, you don't want to put that to the test, right? Because <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, um, yeah. that's pretty risky. So you want to keep them on side mostly if you're a sane politician who wants to be elected. You, you don't want them against you, um, especially someone as activist as Rupert Murdoch was already showing himself to be in the early 70s. And Keith Murdoch before him had been pretty activist as well. But when they're on side with someone and they win, obviously the the temptation is to claim, well, I put them there, which um, Keith Murdoch famously said of Joe Lyons and mm. um, Rupert Murdoch thought he had a hand in Whitlam's victory and probably many other politicians up to Trump, oh, right? Yeah, and he yeah. would claim it was the son that won it. Put them there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. actually, that, that really does come to something else I really wanted to ask you about, which was, you, as you say, they weren't just newspaper owners in Australia. They they often had their hand in, in several kinds of media. There's a, there's a quote that you... Um, uh, that you have from Peter Robinson, who was uh, the editor of the Australian Financial Review for part of the seventies, and he said, "I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that Australian newspaper proprietors before World War II did not play politics. Of course, they did, but it was not until the introduction of commercial television into Australia that there was an overpowering motive of self-interest behind press relationships with politicians." 
Could you talk to us a bit about Australia's seemingly natural tendency towards the concentration of media ownership and kind of, I guess, some of the, the political, uh, the, some of the concrete political impacts you've seen um, in, the, in the research that you've been doing as a result mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, so we're a small population in Australia and city-based in particular areas. This lends itself naturally to sort of market concentration. Mm -hmm. But we also have politicians who are pretty closely tied to some of these groups. And what happens in the 50s is crucial because when commercial television licences come in in Australia, um, 11 out of the first 11 go to newspaper groups. So this was unlike anything we'd seen in the world. Um, So this gave them enormous power because the television stations you only have two in, um, say, somewhere like Sydney or Melbourne, commercial television stations, and there's a huge demand for advertising time on television. It's hugely popular. They're making a lot of money out of this. So these licences really turned them from sort of newspapers to these media giants and media monsters, as I call the book. So they become so extremely powerful as a result of that. And these are political decisions. So if a government can give you a licence, they can also theoretically take away Mm. your licence. So now the relationship changes a bit. Um, You have to make sure your licence is renewed. You um, have to follow certain rules for, for broadcasting and so on. So... In the old days, the newspaper owners didn't want to be licensed by government to run printing presses or to distribute papers. They fought against that in, you know, many hundreds of years ago in the UK. But now you've got this situation where newspapers are sort of beholden to government in one sense because they need television licences and they need them renewed. So it changes that nature relationship, which you even see with Menzies. He gets a bit of power back, really, by giving out these licences and then... Uh, later on, he realises that they have too much power, these newspaper group and groups, and tries to restrict that a bit, but it's a bit late. The horses bolted a bit there. So um, they were very powerful for a long time. Sally, another thorn in the side of these uh, media monsters um, in the time that you were kind of covering in this book, uh, the unions, industrial action uh, is kind of looms large because they literally can shut down you know, all production if they want to. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the effect um, that sort of, you know, unions had and industrial action had during this time and and sort of the lasting effect perhaps on the media landscape? Yeah, it's interesting because newspapers are one of the only products that you can't save up a supply, right? You have to make it the day before. So you can't, um, you know, build up a supply and put it aside in case of trouble like industrial trouble. So newspaper owners always lived in fear of strikes. And the way they had to manage that was they paid printing workers, particularly really high wages. um, And the printing unions had a good deal of power and kept pretty good relations with uh, most of the newspaper owners. And that relationship was really important because they could shut down a newspaper. But as time goes on, um, printing technology changes and we see this, the incoming um, new technology like computers particularly, and that relationship really alters and the owners are pretty determined to take up new technology because it means less reliance on workers who might strike. And when uh, computers came in, we saw quite a few strikes And in previous years, we'd seen strikes that had shut down papers sometimes Mm. for for quite a long time, and it costs a great deal of money 
for the paper owners. So it was always um, a really big issue that they were worried about, which is one of the reasons they didn't like Labor governments, because Labor and unions and more power to unions is a bad thing for them. They um, you know, need that to be a workforce that will work in their interests. And journalists are another example. They had a union, but it was never a particularly... Um, you know, militant union by any sense. It really relied on cooperation between the workers and the owners. I, I still remember the printing press for, was it the Herald Sun was on Flinders Street? Years ago, one of them anyway. Um, I think it became like a George Columbaris restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was um, the, the old Flinders Street, the Herald and Weekly Times yes. building. Ah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And they had the Press Club restaurant in that that building. So that, that building um, is a really famous one. It was a huge building. It doesn't look so big now because it's dwarfed by the mm. buildings around it. But that was Keith Murdoch's domain. And, uh, yeah, it was sort of the power of the media in Australia, the Herald and Weekly Times building, yeah, in Flinders Street. Uh, so I feel like we, I mean, me in particular, I feel like I could I could keep you on the phone for, for literally hours on end, um, but uh, we have to let you go. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, no, thanks for having me. And congratulations. It's been great talking about it. Thank you. It's, it's been great chatting with you too. It's a great book and congratulations I can't on wait it. for volume three now. I'm <laughs> yeah. just like, come on, babe, let's do this. <laughs> I'll try and rev up the energy. <laughs> well, it's so thorough. Your research is in, it's incredible, actually. Like, it's such an amazing sort of record of the history of um uh, you know so congratulations on that but you know i'm really i'm really excited about the next one (laughs) thank you really appreciate that thanks so much today was a pretty uh incredible result yeah yeah yes absolutely i mean i think the thing with when and 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 again regular listeners will uh We'll, we'll know this already, but like, as a media pr- practitioner in Australia, if, when you consider any kind of defamation case, it is so heavily weighted in general uh, in Australia to the complainant rather than the publisher. Mm. You, there is no, um, there is no case, no matter how strong, that you would one hundred percent back the publisher and be like, then they're, they're going to be absolutely fine. At least, not no high profile case. Nothing, nothing where someone such as Ben Robert Smith, where he had quite a bit of resources behind him um, and we can probably get into well, just where they came from. Uh, let's in look a, at yeah. the numbers because it was a $25 million trial. That was the estimated cost, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was There was 110 days of evidence. And this was because um, Nine Papers chose a truth defence. That's right, yeah. 110 days of evidence, 41 witnesses, Six alleged war crimes, which... Um, Incidents, I believe, is the, well, is the, is the no, pre... Yeah, well, no, well, okay. Is fine. the prejudgment wording that the Dude, papers used. I love the fact that actually a lot of the... Um, a lot of the journalists involved in this have come out quite strongly today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just calling it like it is, you know. Well, actually, and I they are. Should, they know we... they're, alleged, they're war crimes. Within those six alleged war crimes were 15 imputations. or hmm. But then there was also um, a domestic violence matter as well. Um, there was also a USB stick in a Tupperware container. I mean, this was <laughs> massive. It was yeah, a massive yeah, yeah, yeah. case. There's been nothing like it in... You know, and I think the interesting thing about it is we cower at, and the fact that even then you felt the need to correct 
to correct that was yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Defamation it's, it's, laws. It's muscle memory at this stage. Yeah, right? defamation laws in this country have made anyone in the media just um, automatically twitch at yeah. anything sort of that remotely is risk, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, risky. It, it's a strange, it's a funny place to be at with all of that now. I mean, I am. I, um, the whenever we talk about things that are potentially legally dicey, <laughs> um, listeners won't know, but I'm often making the let's cut that one off because <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing to lose. That's yeah, why. yeah. You're um, also concerned by <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm I'm operating by your uh, yeah. <laughs> your co-host in the room. Um, but but so I I just without any now without even thinking about it, I will hedge everything. Mm. I will I will say well you know allegedly or according to this testimony or whatever and so even now and we were talking about it before we came on today that that i was going to you know pending any kind of appeal which i assume must be coming Mm. um i'm going to say well justice anthony bazanko found that a number of the reports that were published were basically substantially true that he found that the evidence before him convinced him that they could rely on the truth defense and therefore it wasn't defamatory under the law in this country um, which is crazy. I mean, because uh, so uh, you st- you still feel almost yeah yeah, yeah. afraid to say. And, 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 but as as you as you alluded to, uh, Nick McKenzie, one of the lead um, journalists on on this series, um, basically out and out said, "We have now we now know we can now say this guy's a murderer," um, which is something that yes. Yeah, something that you very rarely feel that you're in a position to say. I mean, I think the interesting contrast is between this and, say, the case that um, that concerned uh, the late Cardinal George Pell uh, and the, the um, accusations of child abuse against him. Um, I'm sure listeners remember this, but, of course, there was a very long trial, which was, you may remember, completely blacked out in the media in Australia. You could not report on it. And it was one of those absurd kind of uh, so suppression orders had been had been put over the case to basically say that you couldn't report on it at all for fear of um, compromising the jury, essentially, which, I, you know, on, on, on one level is actually very uh, a defensible um, approach, um, regardless of what you think of the, of, the, of the ins and outs of this particular case. Um, but of course, there was the real absurdity in this case that people could go on Twitter and see that the Washington Post and various other publications had reported on a case that that Australian journalists weren't allowed to report on in their own country. I mean, the absurdity was that um, Ben Robert Smith bought these allegations, bought yeah, the I, I, defamation I, I, yeah. against mm-hmm. the newspapers, and I, I suppose. Um, the, I guess, you know, perhaps didn't expect a truth defence. But I would have thought, given the amount of evidence that they had and the amount of, um, you know, the, it was in-depth reporting. And, and we're going back mm. to reporting that happened in 2018, the yeah, three, yeah. three stories. And they were real deep investigations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with multiple, you know, witnesses both here and in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, many of them off the record, but all of them you know, obviously verified sources um, and it, it was a huge claim for Ben Robert Smith to bring that was fully funded 
by Kerry Stokes. I don't know about fully funded, but definitely, funded. definitely bankrolled. <laughs> bankrolled. By, but, and that is, again, I mean, and this is something that... Which um, is an interesting connection between talking about these media moguls I, and th- today. This is the thing is that, um, uh, again, it's, it, it, there's many things that's unfortunate about the fact that we can't chat to David about this, but one of the main ones was I wanted five minutes extra to talk to Sally about the development of the media landscape in Western Australia, particularly in my, my home state, mm. and um, how it came to be this way. And the the fact that Kerry Stokes now dominates West Australian media in a way that Rupert Murdoch could only dream of dominating Australian media yeah. by owning... Uh, so Kerry Stokes is the owner of Seven West Media and the chairperson, chairman of um, the Seven Network. So he owns a television station and the only daily newspaper in um, Western Australia. A one-paper town now. And the level of, of control and power that gives you over how that state experiences news it's it's diminished certainly um uh in in the modern era and insofar as the, the same way that we were talking about the absurdity of the george pell situation now anyone in perth can easily get a hold of what the the sydney morning herald for example had to say about ben robert smith today up at the um after the judgment had happened uh, but it still is a very significant thing that a one media mogul is helping to fund defamation act action against a rival paper that is obviously um a, 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 a very significant part of this whole story it just seems like insanity but i just wanted to play if this works um one of the um comments by um one of the journalists involved i think it was a great call back in June 2018, to run that story. Uh, I think it will go down in the history of the news business as one of the great calls. It was wonderful to be supported by Nine. I have a great deal of gratitude to the judge. This was a very difficult case. You often say in defamation that there are few winners. I'm glad to say uh, I'm not standing here as a loser, but I don't think it is true that... uh, that, uh, that anybody comes out of a matter like this uh, feeling uh, exultant and triumphant. It's a relief for the media, frankly. We know we're, we're so often on our knees. It, it often feels so hard to, to even do ordinary work, let alone work as difficult as this. So uh, this judgment comes as, as, a, as a great relief. And my final words go to those soldiers. I don't want people to think of this as a bad day for Australian soldiers. I think of those soldiers that not only had physical courage, but also moral courage. Nick and I know them well. We've spent a lot of time with them. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud that they're out there, that as journalists we can... I just thought that was interesting. It's like it's a relief yeah. for the media. We're so often on our knees, like, the, in regards to, you know what you can and can't report yeah. with defamation yeah, laws yeah, in this sure, country. Sure. That, that was um, uh, Chris Masters, who's a, a veteran journalist over many, many decades in, in Australia and has reported some incredible things, in, in, uh, including this. And, yes, him saying that uh, if, yeah, the, 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 we're so often an unease in this country and, it, it, you know, it's very hard to escape that kind of conclusion. And I think the other thing I would have loved to have talked to David about was there has been reform uh, on defamation law um, quite recently in Australia, making it nominally at least less uh, complainant-friendly, I don't believe that this tested any of that. Mm. I believe this is done under the old system. So, And, and that is actually, I mean, I think that, that's a thing that you talk about, you know, as, as he sort of alluded to, that no one walks away feeling exalted from this. Um, and I can sort of see his point. I mean, the, the, the thing that sort of 
that, that, that kind of really sticks with me of this is that in some ways, if you are accused of war crimes in the Australian media system, you kind of have no choice but to sue because you can't say, oh, you know, I'm, I believe in the free freedom of the press. Well, it's also, one of the most horrific you, things you can be accused of by a newspaper. If you are someone who has been exalted and, yeah, yeah. you know, I think it talks also to the just the, um, you know, that sort of um, kind of propaganda in this, war propaganda in this country and Ben mm. Robert Smith had been held up as this, you know, war hero. He'd been fully exalted. I mean, only, I think it was around the same time, like on a daytime TV show, Yumi Steins yeah, had yeah. said Isn't something. Isn't that a crazy little detail in this thing? Mm. The, 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 she sort of sexualised him slightly and everyone was like, how She didn't though. Or not, in a, not in a... Yeah, she said some made some joke about because you know he was he was being turned into this being qu- deified, Adonis, yeah. like totally deified mm. and untouchable. And she made some flippant comment about you know his oh look at his muscles and his tattoos because he was there was some footage of him you know looking ripped swimming in a pool. And she's like, yeah, but his brain is at the bottom of the pool. She made some yeah, joke yeah, like yeah. that. I, you know, that is not the exact words. Um, <laughs> and the the blowback that she got, you know, the mm. absolute sort of carnage, you know, mentions or no, just asking for her to be taken off air, uh, yeah, her yeah, yeah, program yeah. to be that, taken off air, and it, you, you don't, you can't mm. imagine it now because it's in his, but it was huge. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I remember actually around that time when that happened, quite soon after that little furor happened. This is a very, very weird specific memory, but I remember Ben Robert Smith uh, at some ceremony at a, a cricket match around that time came out and was and was walking along in his shredded capacity. Um, and one of the commentators, I think it was James Brayshaw. I, I actually, I, I don't know. I don't remember who it was. But someone said, he's a big unit. He could probably send him down at what, like 140Ks? And I thought, that's not going to get the same backlash. But surely that's just as trivialising mm. of this great servant to our nation as anything <laughs> Yumi Stein said. But because it's a blokey context, it's not insulting. It's a weird little detail that has always stuck with me. That like, But obviously the- he thought, you know, or there was a sense that he was untouchable and he could take on the media. Like he could take on, you know, these full-on in- investigations into, mm. you know, there was obviously, I guess for me the... There's something really victorious about this in, you know, the system is fucked. <laughs> but in this instance, you know, we talk about what the defama- what our defamation laws strangle. Yeah. But in this instance it was it was in I mean, this I, instance I think, yeah. mounting a truth defense and while I was watching our beautiful uh comb over judge today, not understanding any of his words until <laughs> he talked Justice about Justice Anthony Basanko, by the way, I think we should <laughs> until Justice Anthony Basanko started talking about how the imputations uh <laughs> and how he said that, you know, that um it was basically saying that truth had been established there was something thrilling about it, so thrilling about it you know mm. and i could imagine it was also um <laughs> thrilling to, for nick mckenzie and i'm gonna get a thrill about playing this do you want to hear it do you want to hear what nick mckenzie said on the steps i do of the court as he left after this verdict was reached i mean ben robert smith launched this case me and chris did not want to go to court none of the ss witnesses 
who testified about Robert Smith's war crimes, wanted to go to court. Ben Robert Smith brought this case. He came most every day, but he did not come to the Day of Judgment. He's in Bali doing whatever he's doing. Uh, but, but we're here and we're here to welcome justice and the truth. Uh, what is clear is Ben Robert Smith is a liar. Uh, someone described Ben Robert Smith to me as the Lance Armstrong of the Australian military. Uh, and I think we must now take that as, as truth. Uh, what happens to his awards and decorations is, is a matter for, for others. I'd like Ben Robert Smith to reflect on the pain that he's brought lots of men in the SAS who stood up and told the truth about his conduct. They were mocked and belittled in court. They were bullied. They were intimidated. Some had letters sent to them, threatening letters. I'd like Ben Robert Smith to reflect on the people he murdered, the man he kicked off a cliff, the Afghan villagers. Uh, that's what I think Ben Robert Smith should reflect on. On that point, um, obviously not a lot was able to be said during the trial, but the, we did talk to Ben Doherty, a um, journalist at the, with The Guardian who produced, along with The Guardian team, audio team, a really incredible podcast, um, Ben Robert Smith versus the media. I think they're going to do an updated um, I, I episode dare say they will. <laughs> after this. But what they did was reenact the proceedings. It was 110 days. And the point mm. that Nick made then was they were all cross examined, these witnesses, these Afghani. Um, you know, witnesses to these horrendous events were called upon by to by video evidence and and cross examined horrendously yeah. as part of this truth defence. And it, you know, you you can't imagine what they went through as part of this. And uh, you know, that podcast really brought it to life because there was no no one during that a massive long trial could have an opinion. Have yeah. an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. A it was a freaking one, yeah. defamation trial. <laughs> yeah. Everyone would just be like, well, that's still going on, you Look, know. Yeah. This is what was said today. <laughs> but the way they brought that to life was amazing. Mm. I, mean, I think we should, yeah, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time criticising the media in Australia and obviously we will always, that's part of our role, but you have to say this is um, a, a, a victory for incredible, brave and very risky journalism. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.